Are you ready to take your marketing and advertising game to the next level? Join us at Advertising Week Europe at Picture House Central in London this 16th to 18th of May. Gain unparalleled insights and inspiration from the industry's top minds and network with the biggest brands and agencies in a city known for creativity and innovation. With top industry leaders from brands like Primark, Arla Foods, Uber, and Heineken. Inspiring speakers including talent supremo Simon Cowell and fashion designer Harris Reed, as well as cutting-edge insights, this is your chance to stay ahead of the curve. From AI to brand insights to the latest in tech and everything in between, Advertising Week Europe has got you covered. Join us at Advertising Week Europe and discover why it's a must-attend event for anyone in the marketing and advertising industry at any level. Register now at advertisingweek.com slash Europe and use promo code AW25 for 25% off of your passes. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend. We get to see each other a couple times a year, always enjoy each other's company. We've had some memorable dinners in places like Tokyo, and we'll soon be reunited in uh, Istanbul at the World Federation of Advertisers Annual Global Marketer Week. We are thrilled to welcome the Global Chief Strategy Officer for Accenture Song, the great John Wilkins. So welcome, John. Well, thank you very much indeed, and it's lovely to speak to you again. You forgot about our strange predilection for British ska music and love of all things deep in British culture as well. We will get to Terry Hall and the specials. We will get to our shared affinity for the Shinola brand, not to forget that. So, John, you have such an interesting background and so so much ground to cover here, but... um, you have a, a real deep background in research yes. going back to early days at Granada and then at the uh, infancy of MTV Europe. It sounds to me like that was sort of a great foundation for an incredible career that really spans across all the disciplines of our industry. But I'd love to start with those early days working in research at Granada Television and MTV Europe. Yeah, I mean, I did a degree in sociology and psychology, and I've always been really interested in what makes people tick. And uh, I guess, um, you know, when I was starting my career, I thought, well, you know, my career's advisor said I could be a social worker or not sure on social work. So I decided actually to keep using sort of understanding of what makes people tick and the roles that came up at that stage was sort of research, program research, market research, and using qualitative and quantitative techniques. And I guess, in my humble opinion, the best planners and strategists in our industry are obsessed with humanity and what makes people do the things they do. And I've always loved that discipline as a core foundation for kind of everything. I mean, we're all in the business of motivating people to believe things, action things, do things, and research sits at the heart of all of that, I've, I think. Absolutely. And you then move on to Walt Disney Television. What was Walt Disney Television in 1991? Yeah, it was interesting. So it was actually in the marketing department of, of Walt Disney, um, also known as Buena Vista International. And actually, we worked on 
all different aspects of um, sharing the Disney brand with partners. So we did everything from putting Disney figurines into McDonald's meals and Kellogg's Rice Krispies through to um, working with Russian state broadcasters on syndicating strands of Disney programming into morning TV. And we did that all over the world. And it, it was a, it was an incredible brand to work with. They were very, very, very sure of the power and the audience they brought, which they invariably did. And it was a great learning curve in kind of working with, I guess, one of the most powerful brands, certainly for teenagers and children, came with great responsibility. But that was it, really. I mean, I remember going into Russian state broadcast and we created a, a, a slot of programming from, from memory, 7 a.m. to midday. And it was the advent of PowerPoint. And I remember my boss saying, let's make this presentation look really good. Let's use PowerPoint. And we decided to do it as one of those Q&As where a, your old days of PowerPoint where a face crops up with a big question and then another face crops up with an answer. And for the question, I had this uh, graphic of a guy with a big moustache and, uh, and then the answer. And some of the questions were not dumb, but a little bit, you know, broad. Anyway, we went into the room in Moscow with all these state broadcasts and every single person in the room had a great big moustache. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, shit, you know, this is... Uh, this is going to go down really badly because they're going to think I'm sort of taking the mickey out of them with this PowerPoint graphic. But yeah, I mean, surreal times, old times, TV was king, content was king, I guess it still is. Disney were a preeminent brand and, you know, learn a lot. It was good. Fantastic stuff. And I want to get to uh, your legendary run at Naked, but but before that you had a run of two great shops, give or take seven years combined between BMP, DDB, and PhD. Were David, Nick, and Jonathan still there at that time at PhD? They were. They were still there. They just, uh, um, so BMP, which is, I think, now called Adam and Eve, but the DDB UK office was a brilliant introduction for me into planning, really. You know, um, we, we had a uh, brilliant planning culture at BMP um, and uh, the interesting thing about it was account planning and the discipline of brand planning and communications planning was sort of one of the same thing and uh, that was amazing and that was where I got really interested in I guess the dynamic changes in our industry many of which were triggered by the new media that were emerging both in terms of fragmentation of media so the very early advent of digital media and uh I just kind of thought, crikey, all the exciting stuff's happening in media. I met Jonathan Durden, and you're right, the three guys were still there. And he said, look, we believe media can be the most creative force. So for me, that was a great challenge. So I left BMP with a heavy heart, although extremely well schooled in planning by that time, and went in to run initially the creative communications team at uh, at PhD, which was a merger of all sorts of different skills. And latterly, I think, ended up joining MD there before doing, you know, the next thing. But, you know, I, I love those guys and they were true entrepreneurs. They just sold their business to BBDO. So again, stayed in the Omnicom family, you know, got to work a lot with the BBDO network. We opened PhD in multiple markets, was part of the bag carrying for David Patterson as they opened in New York. And, you, you know, I still to this day think PhD are a really smart outfit. I did a 
contagious event with their global CSO last week. And, you know, everything that they do about bringing intelligence to what can be quite a grunty discipline, I applaud. So I still got a strong affinity with those guys, you know. I love those guys. You know, our first year when we launched Advertising Week Europe in London, we had on stage Nick Horswell, David Patterson and Jonathan Durden together. And it's, you know... You forget, it's easy to forget, especially for, you know, people just coming into the business that those letters uh, on a building were represent people and uh, all of them still with us, thankfully, all in good health. Uh, Jonathan, crazy as ever. I like all those guys. I'm glad we got to talk about them a little bit. Yeah, they were a brilliant example of entrepreneurialism and also alchemy. And I've got to say, I don't think naked for us would have been possible without their inspiration you know seeing three rounded characters with very different skills combined to deliver a product was a real interesting lesson and you couldn't help but be kind of addicted to their entrepreneurial gene through working with those guys so very well said and i could not agree more so let's talk about naked you had an incredible run there naked is legendary in the business so many people who have gone on to accomplish other things, have roots at Naked, which I think is the most important barometer of the success of a business, the talent it creates not only while it's there, but when it's evolved and as those people have moved on to other gigs. Can we go back to sort of the origin story, if you will, of Naked? Because I don't think I know that. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess um, it kind of everything you know, comes from, I guess, a collision of what's around you. And at the time, um, we we felt that media and creative were out of sync as disciplines. You know, creative agencies were sort of slaves to what was at the time quite old-fashioned media. Media agencies were trying to embrace these new platforms, but they didn't have a seat at the top table. And I guess... Our initial thought, which I guess was one of the foundations of what you might call media neutrality, was really brands should be um, controlled by, um, uh, you know, um, an unbiased perspective on how they evolve, how they crop up into people's lives. And at the moment, at that time, there wasn't an option for them to do that. So we set up as a... uh, uh, I guess, a brand communications consultancy advising clients on how to connect with their audiences in the most effective way. We brought together lots of different skills, but we did it with a, a really good flavor, I felt. I felt like the secret of Naked Success was its own branding, its own positioning. As you say, the talent we managed to get through that building when I look back with incredible pride at the people who who work there and the fondness that they all have for working there. I think we created a, a really lovely working environment and not just me or everybody who worked there felt a responsibility to create that environment where all the minds were very curious. Uh, our recruitment strategy, I remember, was to, to hire the most brilliant misfits we could find in the industry. And that was really about finding people who were ultimately quite unfulfilled working in an ad agency or a single discipline company and wanted to embrace the broadest gamut of what brand and communications could look and feel like. And, you know, we we did a good job on the branding. We were actually quite a crap business looking back. But I think what we did do was we got it right for a lot of big clients. We definitely got it right for our talent. And we definitely shook the industry up. 
you know, and I mean, some companies, I've obviously thought a lot about this subsequently. I think some businesses launched to be great businesses. We kind of didn't. We launched to be genuinely disruptive and, and try and change things up. And I know we succeeded because I've spoken, you know, spoken to all the pillars of the industry at that time and they went, yeah, you, you, what's it? You, you made us change everything. So that was good. It really had an outsized impact. And one of your old buddies, Paul Wilmington, and I have stayed close over the years and another brilliant guy. And, you know, what was it about the culture and what was it about Naked? If you had a, you know, we're in an elevator and we're only going up a few floors. And I say, what was it about it that made that place so much bigger than it really was? No, I think it was the feeling that every all of us were unencumbered you could be your authentic self you could be strategically true and then we all had a kind of real sense of sort of freedom and ambition these are all very soft words but i choose them carefully i think it felt very entrepreneurial it, and 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 it felt like you were always doing the right thing we we wrote a book an internal book which i wish i still had i probably have got it somewhere and i think one of our what we, we we organized it around mentors and we said, look, this is about being brilliant and doing the right thing every day on behalf of your clients and your people. And I think at the time, a lot of the people we hired sort of would say things like, I mastered the brand here and then it just disappeared into a 60 second ad and it was so unfulfilling. Or I wrote a media plan there and I just know that I was choosing channels based on the deals and the the way the industry was structured, not on the right answer. Or I work within a very specific channel and I'm limited, my wings are clipped. And we were like, look, just come and play, you know, have fun. And we'd interview people and say, look, you know, the best thing about Naked is it's like diving into a swimming pool where you can't see the bottom, but it just feels magical. So we had all these incredible values looking back on it that I think just made it feel different. Clients felt different in our environment. We didn't want to appeal to everybody. We said appeal could come from any company, but it would be defined by game-changing clients who wanted to shake things up. So we had a natural self-selection process. We decided that uh, if we appealed to 10% of clients out there, we'd be really happy. We had a lot of repeat purchases. We, you know, I felt we challenged the status quo. There was some so many hilarious meetings with very very senior incredible marketers where somehow we got through it and, and created meaningful business and so yeah i mean i'd say if one word would be freedom freedom to do the right thing i think we all felt that and that was really important well i and i love that the roots were not focused necessarily on running the greatest business though clearly you did quite a bit of good business over the time also. Yeah, we did some good business. I mean, what we found was it was a sort of global contagion, you know, the bit that we got into initially in London, we then realised there was the same talent and the same clients in New York, in Sydney, in Tokyo, in Auckland, in, you know, in, I can't even remember, we ended up like nearly everywhere, Holland, Germany, France, you know, Dubai, I think the last tally we had like 14 offices and outposts and they all were bonded by the same philosophy. They all appeared to the same, I think, forward-facing client was just looking for a different flavour. And, you know, and I mean, yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a great journey. I mean, 
learned a hell of a lot, both good and bad, learned a lot about myself as a human, learned a lot about life, you know, learned a fair amount about business, but that was secondary, to be honest. And uh, I kind of think, you know, if you look at all the great ideas in our industry and in in brands more generally, if you start with how do you make money, you tend to end up looking the same as the others. You might be able to sell it better, but you look very similar. We we just didn't look similar because we were based on a belief system, you know, and that just made us feel different, I think. So well told and such a great, great part of the recent history of our industry. Focusing the lens back on you, John, I think of you as one of the great creative thinkers in our industry. But I would think that background and research and planning on the media side was really quite useful to you as you built, you know, sort of the John Wilkins Foundation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of, in, in my latter life, I've started to realize, you know, that, yeah, you know, I'm definitely a hybrid. You know, I like to base everything on the reality of the people you're talking to. I'm quite grounded as a human and, you know, I'm not overly analytical but I get people and then I think the combination of strategy and creative I've always very comfortably straddled those two words two worlds there are much better planners than me and there are much better creatives than me but there aren't a hell of a lot of people who can equally just jump between the two disciplines as flexibly as others and I've, I've had amazing creative leaders in the world I won't name names because I don't want to embarrass them saying that I'm their strongest creative asset. And then I've had the best planners going, you know, you see things strategically differently. But I think, yeah, that hybrid and that commitment to understanding people, never um, diminishing the importance of being able to communicate with that person and then being able to bridge strategy and creativity is probably the bits I enjoy the most. Some days I turn up and I just want to work in a creative playground. Other days, I just want to work in research and analytics. Other days, I'm really interested in sort of what builds a strategy for a company. And I'm kind of lucky to have had jobs that have given me that freedom. You know, I feel blessed and not to have been straight-jacketed too much. You're lucky and your clients have been, uh, and companies have been the beneficiaries. So let's talk about Kamarama. Kamarama is one of my favorite shops and played, I know we've touched on this before, but before you got there, when Nicola was running it and Dave Bonaguidi was there, they were our first creative agency when we launched Advertising Week Europe in London. I remember that. Yeah. And where was the office uh, in uh, Farringdon, was it? That's right. That's where I'm sitting now. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I leaving Naked was a real wrench and actually a multitude of reasons why I left mostly personal, to be honest. But coming back to London, you know, I, I you know, again, not being remotely big headed, but I had a few offers in these big, big companies that we all know. And I just used to go in and felt a bit heavy walking out of there. And I remember coming for an interview, Nicola had obviously left to take a Facebook job and her role was kind of sitting vacant. And I remember coming for a interview at Kamarama and it just felt soulful. It felt more familiar to me, more an agency that stood for something. It was a brilliant employee brand. Um, it took the karma in Rama very seriously. It, it was um, 
uh, a place where everybody seemed to be incredibly happy and comfortable in their own skin. And I remember sitting in reception waiting for an interview or to go for a beer with the leaders or whatever, just hearing people talk. And I just thought, yeah, you know, this feels great. And, you know, it was definitively the worst job offer I got, but without a shadow of a doubt, the best decision, because I, you know, I, I guess when you've worked in companies with such sort of soul and principle as Think Naked did, it's much harder to swap that out to 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 not bring some of that in. And, you know, the value system that Karma and Arma had, I loved it. I helped them codify it, grow the business and uh, then move forwards from there. So, yeah, it's been a great journey. We uh, did our first rap party. There was a club in Farrington, I think, Fabric. Yeah. Uh, still around? Yeah. We had Nas our first year, and I think it was way too crowded and raining, and as it does in London from time to time. And I think it was a great show, but it was a little, a little dicey getting everybody in and you know managing the crowd. But but that was a great club, and I loved. Mem- a very vivid memories of the Karmarama office in Farringdon. It was just such a such a cool atmosphere. Yeah, we're like you know walking distance from that famous club, and that's. You know, still going. It had obviously had its lockdown moment uh, and then resuscitated it, resuscitated itself. And you know, you did well to get that place because it's still one of the not for us older folk, but for the youngsters, it's still one of the coolest places to go in London. And uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, you can't really do much better than that. Yeah, we uh, we've had some great music as part of Advertising Week Europe in London. We'll have some great stuff this year in May. Uh, Ronnie Scott is very kindly allows us to take the club one evening. Yeah, yeah. And we do that with Vivo, and uh, we're going to have a great, great show this year. Uh, last year was Tom Walker. This year they booked something. I can't believe what they've done, but it's uh, going to be amazing. And we, I love I love Coco. I, where we haven't done a show, John, is where you and I had a great night, uh, and I'm dying to get there eventually, is the Roundhouse. Uh, and we shared a great evening uh, with the specials, and sadly – um, we will not see another gig. No, I mean, that is tragic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when you trace back your, your youth and how culture impacts the jobs you take and the selections. And by the way, I'm not, I have thought about this before because I did a, a radio interview once and they were saying, what in your youth helped you to, you know, or is part of your navigation in your career? And to me, punk, Scar, the modern movement, they were alternative youth cultures. And, you know, I, I, I always, what I loved about them and the specials were literally right up there with the jam and the clash and some of these brilliant bands we had in, in and around London was just like, you know, that they, they, they stood on the outside and made the whole thing better. And, you know, I think, you know, that kind of punk mentality and I know the specials were more than punk, but that kind of anarchic mentality has definitely shaped everything I've ever done. I've never wanted to be modern mainstream in my head as a thinker, as a strategist, as a business person. I've always wanted to be a challenger. I've always wanted to be slightly on the edge, you know, and, and I think that goes right back to that affinity with that kind of music because that music, you know, at the time in London, you know, in the UK, there was no multicultural bands. There were, you know, we we were like any part of the world, you know, you had black culture, you had white culture, and it really didn't mix. And 
what they did was magical. You know, they took a, a music from, from the Caribbean, they blended it in a very British way, they presented it in a multicultural way, they combated racism, which at the time in the 70s was ugly in the UK, and, and they kind of won. You know, so, I mean, you look at that and you go, that is strength, that's resilience, that's uh, an outlier mentality, but, you know, challenging some of the biggest issues that we had in British culture. So I've always loved them and I love Terry Hall and I loved his antagonism and his difference, but also his integrity and his sensitivities. So, you know, he will be very sadly missed, you know. Yeah, no, just a, a tragic loss and we've lost so many you know, great, great artists the last couple of years. We lost Tom Petty at a young age, Prince at a young age. Um, just, just awful. And I have incredible memories of the specials and the English Beat, who were the other, you know, big band of that two-tone era. And I don't remember, I don't remember how, because it was well before, you know, the internet and, and everything else. But when I was in high school in about 19... 78 79 the english beat the english beat came to america for the first time they were playing at a place called webster hall it was then called the ritz uh, but it's the same building we use it for concerts we had uh, p diddy there last year last year in october and uh we had snoop dogg there one year we had pitbull there one year it's a gr still a great room and somehow i got to ranking roger there were two lead singers dave wakeling who's still around and I got to him somehow and we went for pizza on 14th street and I, and I interviewed him for my high school newspaper and I have no idea how I got to him. And you know, he's passed as well. I mean, I, I, I know. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw one of his last performances and, you know, again, that whole, uh, you know, it just felt so different at that time. You know, we, we, I can't, I mean, you know, Everybody loved reggae and Bob Marley and soul music, or lots of people did, but you just didn't see these bodies coming together as such. You know, multiculturalism in music sort of didn't really exist. You know, you could say I like rock music or I like soul music or I like, you know, but that you never really saw the embodiment of a, a beautiful multicultural experience until bands like The Beat and The Specials emerged. And I think that was what the world needed. I mean, it's what the world still needs. But, you know, what they did was incredible and not easy. It, it sounds so easy to say it now, but at the time it wasn't easy. Rankin Roger would have had so much shit performing, you know, in front of skinheads and dealing with that. The same would be true of the, the guys who, who were with Terry Hall. You know, it was a different era. Thank God we've moved on. But these guys were pioneers, you know, true pioneers. Yeah, it genuinely brought people together. I'm glad we got to talk about that and uh, our shared passion. So let's talk about the journey to be part of the Accenture family. Yeah, I mean, with Karma they'd already... Uh, decided that before my time, really un, under the management team and Dave and and, and uh, obviously, you know, the people were performing to sort of get heavily into technology and to digitize the business. And they brought on board private equity and we'd started acquiring uh, businesses to sort of drag a great brand creative agency into the 21st century. And also at the heart of Kamarama was quite an anti-network, you know, anti-commodity play. So 
when the private equity deal was done, you know, there was always going to be an exit for that private equity business. And, you know, one of the things that we did as a management team was we assessed the opportunities as we saw on the horizon. And, you know, we saw that technology was going to play an incredible role in shaping creativity, whether it was new platforms or new new ways of developing and creating content. And obviously that changes by the day now. So we could see an advantage to being part of a technology company. And then as a, not as an arrogant management team, but we always wanted creativity to move upstream. We always felt that, you know, creativity within the confines of brand timing, budget, channel was, was a limiter really on the ambition of creative minds. So, we started looking at the consultancy space. We met with a handful, I can't even, I, well, I can remember, but it doesn't even matter. We met with a handful of consultants to see if there might be a new route forward for, for a creative agency. And I remember we met with Accenture uh, and at the time their marketing division was called Interactive. They were very heavily into marketing technology, ad tech, martech, and a little bit into digital marketing, but not really into brand. And we met with them and we talked about, you know, a new emerging model, what that might look like and whether there was an opportunity to be at the vanguard of the next phase of what, you know, a creative business could look like. And uh, they shared that vision. And it was actually quite an interesting conversation. It was never really a transactional conversation i think from memory we spent sort of six to nine months co-creating the next wave of what an agency of the future could look like and it felt interesting for me personally it felt like another rebellion albeit a rebellion with inside a very big company um and yeah so we we dived headfirst in we were the first brand agency to become part of accenture and uh my bosses at the time said, look, we kind of love this, John. Can you help us bring a load more of you guys in? And, uh, you know, I was part of the team that then acquired, I think, 10 or 12 of the best creative agencies in the world, you know, both in terms of uh, helping to align um, founder objectives, but also with every new acquisition, we shaped and refined what our promise could be. And that sort of obviously culminated uh, with... Um, uh, uh, David and the Droga team joining in, uh, in in New York, or predominantly in New York, albeit they were in the UK as well. And that was a great journey to go from almost, you know, a couple of hundred of us to, I think there's now seven or 8,000 of us. That was an incredible journey. And all the way through, I mean, I've all, we've always described ourselves as one of the best funded startups in advertising history. And, and we still are, and we're still, you know, We've got a vision on what we want to achieve. We've got a point of view. We've got some thought leadership, but we're work in progress. You know, we're we're evolving all the time. Um, there's brilliant minds all around us, and it just feels exciting to be part of something new. And I guess going back to that punk thing, it's disruptive. It's disruptive. You know, people. Everybody's got an opinion on it. Is it going to succeed? Is it going to fail? Who are these people? Why are they, you know, and I kind of like it. I like the fact that it's moved the industry on again. You know, you look at the way 
Publicis and Dentsu and, and you know they've all responded to that challenge by upskilling in technology, by upskilling in strategy. And you know, we want well for me personally, even though I'm a small part of this, I feel like I've been at the vanguard of something that's also shaped the industry up a lot. And that for me is a good good thing. You know, personally, I get off on that just sort of making things change for the better, you know. Yeah, no, you sure have. And that's a real thread of continuity uh, from your early career, you know, through Naked, through Kamarama, right through to the present day today and, and, and as important tomorrow. Talk about, John, the challenge of culture and maintaining culture. I have very strong memories, which we touched on earlier, of Kamarama as sort of a special place. And you've now grown from something that was this big to something that's really that big. Uh, talk about that challenge of growing and maintaining culture as part of such a large global organization. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it helps having David at the helm because he, he's, uh, he gives us all a sense of um, uh, security, knowing that we've got a creative leader who really cares about the direction of the business so that helps i think uh thing about accenture the big organization is it's the most client-centric company i've ever worked for and it's absolutely huge so it, it, i think there's seven hundred and sixty thousand people in accenture and as such it's more like a nation state than a company with an evolved culture so what I say to my friends when they say, oh, that must be different, you know, consultants are different. Uh, I sort of, sort of honestly say, you know, Accenture isn't a monoculture. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's basically a relationship-driven organisation that organises itself around client growth. I mean, nothing more complex than that. So, you know, so our little bit, Accenture Song, which is the creative arm, and trust me, it's little in comparison to bigger censure we 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 strangely are not really impacted by culturally by anything you know we're just left to get on with it there are some operational norms that we've had to conform to which are boring genuinely boring so i won't go into them but actually you know we we've been pretty much allowed to spearhead you know what creativity what customer growth looks like, you know, how to harness these new technologies and, and new capabilities that we have in droves to really accelerate how we help our clients grow. And it's been a it's been a great journey. And as I say, it's like culturally, I haven't changed. Our people haven't changed. I mean, clearly some people see it as an aspirational view on where creativity can go i personally do i i believe that creativity is a top table skill and you know the fact that we can within accenture take great ideas to the heart of how businesses grow is personally what excites me um it might not be for everybody but i only see opportunity really and i don't see cultural limitations at all you know so 
Yeah, it's just more of the same. And also a lot of us joined by being one of the best independent agencies in our market. We all wanted to create a kinship and work on bigger clients and work globally and internationally. And actually, you know, we're all great mates. You know, we've all been on this journey together. And um, um, yeah, it, so yeah, it kind of feels different, of course, but it still feels really exciting. And you know, as a creatively minded person, it still feels incredibly challenging. And I think you need that. That's, that's healthy. The second it's not challenging, it's not worth doing, you know. Absolutely. And you really have assembled, uh, I like that language of a well-funded startup, an incredible roster of talent globally. I mean, you have really assembled, you know, what would be the equivalent of an all-star team. Yeah, I mean, not me personally, but the business has. And as I say, I've played a small part in it. But, you know, you look around the room when we all get together and when we do global pitches and when we share clients and share dialogue. And, you know, it is great to uh, great to surround yourself with those people. And, you know, one thing is obviously they're all, you know, you don't start your own agency if you don't think you're a little bit better than the the average and uh, all of our agencies were owner-oriented and most of the founders are still in the business. And then I think the other thing is, you know, to, to, to want to start your own agency, you have to have an entrepreneurial mindset. So I believe we have a higher quotient of entrepreneurs than any of the networks. And we've got a, a, a very, very high bench of talent, you know, and, when we come together, it feels great. I mean, you know, working on two or three big global things at the moment. And, you know, it's a delightful experience. You know, you're working with King, King James in South Africa. I hope you met them when you were down there. You're working with the Droga guys in New York who are clearly fantastic. You're working with, you know, the the band formerly known as Reba in Germany who are literally one of the best agents. You know, so... Everywhere I look, it's like, yeah, this this feels this feels good. The people are great, and um, yeah, we're very lucky, very lucky. So we'll next be uh, together uh, with the World Federation of Advertisers, and you're a key player in that organization, uh, and really help set that agenda globally. Looking ahead at the year uh, and into twenty four, you know, very popular right now to talk about AI and, and what that's going to do to the industry. But what do you think the top, you know, in the Wilkins crystal ball, the top two or three issues that our industry is going to be facing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, they're all intermingled and linked. And that's the brilliant thing about cultural and technological trend, trends. But I think, um, you know, brand and trust is going to be right up there near the top. I think, um, uh, new technologies make uh, things slightly more confusing as well as create opportunities. So I think trust generally is going to become a, 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 a bigger issue for brands uh, when you can recreate stuff in seconds and make things look passable, you know, trust. I think creative excellence, true creative excellence is going to become uh, a, a prerequisite you know I've done lots of stuff with very big global clients recently we've talked about the power of 
generative AI at sort of helping with sort of mid funnel and volume of content. But every single client I've spoken to has said, you know, the downside is, you know, a lot of this stuff is going to look the same. And as we know, the combination of man and machine, you know, man has to lead machine because without that, you know, we'll be living in a homogenous mess of sameness. So I think that, I think, getting the right balance and combination of man and machine. When I say man, I don't mean man. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Human and machine is going to be critical. Um, I think getting the right uh, legacy for brands are built around trust is going to be critical. I think embracing um, new and emerging technologies, but not over committing because it's the same with the metaverse. It will be the same with chat. GPT, people will dive headlong in. There will be a, a backlash, an immediate backlash. Things won't work the way people thought they would work. Uh, then there'll be a normalization. Then you'll start to see some consistent usage and behaviors that can help us to transcend the world we operate in. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really interesting. You know, the the thing about Istanbul is you bring a lot of great minds together and you, you start to sort of reshape what, what things might look like moving forward. So, as you know, we've been one of the things I've been very lucky to be invited for many years now, principally focused on sort of better marketing, which is their module or whatever. And I think the best thing about better is, you know, it's about um, uh, embracing change and getting the right step steps and balances, checks and balances to move the game on. And competitive advantage, as we know, comes from the people who um, can live within the context of the world at any given time the best. And, you know, brands need to be able to navigate that world. They need to know what they stand for. They still need a strong position on everything because the world's orienting around them quicker than ever before. They need to embrace new technologies, but not overcommit. They need to test and learn. And they definitely need to really work on what, what, what they're going to bring, the added dimensions of trust that they're going to bring to the customer relationship. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be a good one. You know, I mean, you know, our world is changing faster. I do believe that. So but at the same time, holding on to some really important principles about brand and marketing are going to be more important than ever. So it's going to be good, I think. Terrific. Well, John, thanks so much for doing this. This was such a pleasure. We could do uh, two or three more of these and, uh, and barely scratch the surface of topics that I think interest us both and, and hopefully everyone else. But uh, um, and I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about the specials in Terry Hall. That's good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's a great pleasure and honor to speak to you as always. Sir. And uh, looking forward to seeing you very, very soon. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.